Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Educating Investors podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode, Tapering Rate Hikes and Quantitative Tightening. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help to educate as many individuals as possible on markets, the economy, and financial planning topics. The Fed and the release of their minutes discuss not only the idea of raising rates sooner after the end of tapering of asset purchases, but also the possibility of speeding up the unwinding of their balance sheet known as quantitative tightening. What would this mean potentially for the markets? The start of the new year has taken a negative turn for the equity markets, especially after the recent release of the Fed minutes from their December FOMC meeting. The minutes confirmed the Fed speeding up the completion of their tapering of asset purchases to March. The only reason why the Fed would speed up the end of its taper is that it wants the ability to raise interest rates sooner than previously expected. The Fed Fund's futures are pricing in four rate hikes for 2022, with hikes coming as soon as March, with the potential for additional hikes to happen in June, September, and December versus the three rate hikes the Fed projected in their December economic projections. The bond market is priced in four rate hikes with a two-year Treasury yield of 1.01% from a yield of 0.125% a year ago. The almost 1% rise in the two-year Treasury is pricing in again four rate hikes of a quarter percent since the two-year Treasury yield is closely correlated to the Fed funds rate. The good news for the market is that the Fed Fund's future in the two-year Treasury has priced in the rate hikes and at this point should not be a surprise to the market. The Fed has made it clear that it would not start to raise the Fed Fund's rate until tapering was completed. Powell said the Fed would have to wind up its security purchase before it could start raising its Fed Fund's target. Buying bonds adds reserves to the banking system, which damps down the short-term interest rates, though those purchases would be at cross-purposes with trying to hike rates. Ending asset purchases would be like raising the Fed funds rate over 1%. This is because the Wuxi Shadow Federal Funds rate stood at a negative 1.15% as of December 31st. The Wuxi Shadow Fed funds rate shows what the Fed funds rate would be if alternative easing through unconventional policies such as quantitative easing is factored in when policy rate is at the zero bound. According to data from Bank of America Global Research, the only down year for the S&P 500 in the last 10 years was 2018 when the Fed raised the Fed funds rate 1%. This is something to think about as the market is pricing in four rate hikes for this year. We take into account the completion of tapering and the market expectation of four rate hikes in 2022. This would be like the approximate tightening of 2.15% in the Fed funds rate. The surprise in the Fed minutes revolves around their discussion of the balance sheet reduction. In the recent release minutes from their December meeting, central bankers signaled that they may start winding down the balance sheet sooner and more aggressively than markets have expected. It is now clear to everyone that the Fed would like to hike interest rates sooner and buy more than expected just a few months ago, and that it would like to reduce its balance sheet sooner, faster, and buy a lot more. The word balance sheet runoff occurred 10 times in the December FOMC minutes. Quantitative tightening is when the Fed receives principal repayment from its treasury holdings, but does not roll them over into newly issued treasuries. In other words, quantitative tightening refers to policies that reduces the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. To have an idea of what potentially faster and more aggressive balance sheet runoff would look like, we need to take a look at what happened the last time the Fed did this. Last time around, the Fed kept its balance sheet steady for about three years after finishing the taper did that by using the money from maturing bonds to buy replacements. It didn't turn to quantitative tightening until it raised its interest rate target from near zero to one to one and a quarter percent. 
when the Fed began the process in late 2017, the economy weak, was weaker than it is now. Inflation was below the Fed's 2% target, and the unemployment rate was higher. In October of 2017, the Fed began along a small amount of holdings, $10 billion to run off every quarter, with the amount increasing by $10 billion every quarter through 2018. The Fed paused its balance sheet runoff in 2019 and began to increase its holdings later in the year amid concerns the central bank had drained too many bank deposits, known as reserves, from the financial system. The Fed was rolling off its balance sheet while raising rates at the same time. When the Fed embarked upon balance sheet normalization in 2017, then-Fed Chairman Janet Yellen suggested it would run quietly in the background and be as exciting as watching paint dry. So the Fed was tightening policy by raising rates and rolling off the balance sheet at the same time. The markets did not react positively to this tightening. In 2018, there were two double-digit corrections in the U.S. stock market, culminating with an almost 20% drop into Christmas. Again, to repeat, 2018 was the only negative total return for the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. By Q3 of 2019, the yield curve had inverted, and in 2020, we were on track for a recession with or without COVID. With the possibility of the Fed rolling off the balance sheet shortly after they start to raise rates, any limits or caps on the amount of bonds allowed to roll off the balance sheet are likely to be higher than in the 2017 to 2019 period of quantitative tightening, as the Fed has stated in their minutes from their December FOMC meeting. This is because their current balance sheet has a large amount of treasuries that will be maturing in the next few years, including this year. The Fed's balance sheet today consists of many shorter-term treasury securities than it did in the previous decade. If officials didn't limit the potential runoff, the holdings would shrink relatively quickly by about $3 trillion over two years. Letting him roll off as they mature up to the cap would be a passive roll off the balance sheet. A potential issue with this could be there could be more supply of shorter-term treasuries that would need to be purchased by other buyers with the Fed out of the market, which along with potential further rate hikes could lead to higher short-term rates and a continuing flattening and possible inversion of the yield curve. In periods when the Fed is hiking short-term interest rates, the yield curve flattens. Long-term rates tend to rise less than short-term rates or even decline because tighter monetary policy signals slower growth and lower inflation down the road. This could lead to the Fed to sell some of their longer maturity mortgage holdings. This would help to potentially alleviate two issues for the Fed. The first would be pull back the unnecessary support for the housing market that has happened by the Fed purchasing mortgage-backed securities for too long when the housing market was not in need of the additional help. Also, this will lead to potentially higher longer-term rates to help alleviate the potential flattening and possible inversion of the yield curve. This would be a more active roll-off of the balance sheet. An inverted yield curve historically has preceded recessions. Consequently, the Fed will likely focus on managing its tightening policy to allow long-term rates to stay above short-term rates. Raphael Bostic, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, recently stated that he believed that the central bank should be aggressive in terms of its balance sheet roll-off, allowing its holding to decline by at least $100 billion a month, and with a plan to quickly pull at least $1.5 trillion out of the financial markets that he considers pure excess liquidity. The question is how the Fed will approach the Fed balance sheet runoff this time. Given the strong recent negative market reaction to the prospect of tighter policy, it's likely that the Fed will use this communication tool known as forward guidance to try to talk down and calm markets. By clarifying its plans, the Fed can help to reduce some of the potential volatility as markets adjust to its shift in policy. I would believe that the Fed will start to give more details on their balance sheet reduction plan well in advance of beginning the process to prepare markets. 
Some of the information they will provide at that time will be the limiting caps of how much they will roll off per month, the composition of the roll-off between treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, as well as whether it will be a passive or active roll-off or both. The Fed will allow them to change the plan based on economic and market conditions. According to Chairman Powell at his recent renomination meeting in front of the Senate, he stated at some point, perhaps later this year, we will start to allow the balance sheet to run off, and that's just the road to normalizing policy. According to Deutsche Bank's Jim Reed, citing the bank's economist Matt Luzetti and rate strategist Stephen Zhang, project that the Fed balance sheet would peak just under $9 trillion after QE completes in March, before falling back to eventually approaching 20% of GDP from over 35% today, and around a third smaller than this peak, at which point it would be around $6 trillion. According to the Deutsche Bank report, it approximates that $650 to $700 billion drawdown equated to around a 25 basis point hike during the last period of quantitative tightening. A more recent report from Deutsche Bank economists estimates that if the Fed were to reduce its holding by around $1.5 trillion between this summer and the end of next year, it could have the effect of around three-quarter percentage point rate increase. We use the starting point for QT quantitative tightening to start the last half of the year at the $100 billion cap that Raphael Bostic mentions. That would mean that $600 billion would be rolled off, which would be like another rate hike of 25 basis points. So to bring this all together, the end of tapering, four rate hikes, and the potential roll-off of $600 billion off the balance sheet this year would be the approximate tightening of 2.4% in 2022. This is not including the potential additional rate hikes the Fed has penciled in and the balance sheet roll-off for 2023. From the December economic Fed projections, their neutral rate of interest is currently at 2.5%. The neutral rate of interest is the interest rate that supports the economy at full employment and maximum output while keeping inflation constant. So even though the market and the Fed projections don't see the Fed raising rates this year, obviously, to get to 2.5%, the tapering of asset purchases and the potential roll-off of the balance sheet would be like bringing the Fed funds rate near the Fed's current neutral rate. This is why the Fed tightened too far last time, because they raised rates and rolled off the balance sheets at the same time, which caused the two corrections in 2018. Let's remember that the neutral rate has been peaking at lower and lower levels. This would mean that the neutral rate could be 2% or even lower, which means the possibility of over-tightening by the Fed could occur at even lower levels than their current projection of 2.5%. Why is this important is because if the Fed does over-tighten, this could lead to a flattening and possible inversion of the yield curve, which normally happens before recessions occur. Again, the last time the Fed tightened by raising rates and rolling off their balance sheets by quarter three of 2019, the yield curve had inverted, and in 2020 we were on track for a recession. With lower and lower neutral rates and the Fed tightening through the completion of their asset purchases, along with the potential roll-off of their balance sheet and rate hikes, I believe it will be very hard for the Fed to raise rates as much as the market is projecting in the Fed funds futures. Historically, each round of rate hikes tends to end in a recession, and the level at which higher rates have caused the recessions have been at lower and lower levels. If we look at what Treasury yields did during quantitative tightening last time, it was similar to what happens during the end of QE. 10-year notes rose during each quantitative easing period and fell upon its conclusion. Yields fell precipitously when the Fed reversed quantitative easing via quantitative tightening last time. The yield curve during this time also flattened at the end of QE and during quantitative tightening. This is one of the reasons for the recent market downturn. 44% of global investors in the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey from January saw Hawkins Central Bank tightening as the market's biggest risk. A policy mistake by the Fed could lead to more market volatility, a slowing economic growth, or a possible recession.
Now that we have discussed what happened the last time the Fed attempted to shrink its balance sheet and hike rates simultaneously, putting the balance sheet into runoff while concurrently hiking rates at every meeting was a bad idea the last time it was attempted. Does the Fed really want to forget the past and try to attempt this again? There are some that are skeptical that the Fed will follow up on what they are saying. David Rosenberg, chief economist and strategist at Rosenberg Research, isn't buying the tough talk from the Fed. He says one should be skeptical of the Fed's forecast given the poor track record, even though investors treat them as gospel. He goes on to state that dating back to 2012, the Fed's forecasts on rates have been correct 37% of the time. Also, the makeup of the voting members of the FOMC has changed this year, including the new nominees of President Biden for vacant seats on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, Sarah Bloom Raskin, Lisa Cook, and Philip Jefferson. If their nominations were confirmed, they are unlikely to stand in the way of hawkish pivot of the Fed to bring down inflation because it will likely be well underway before they are confirmed for their new jobs. However, because they would be new additions to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, they have a permanent vote on monetary policy, unlike regional Fed presidents who rotate. If inflation were to come more under control, they could resist substantial tightening in the future that could hinder the labor markets. On paper, the annual rotation among regional Fed presidents seemed to be a little bit more hawkish as the incoming voters replaced some colleagues who typically were more dovish. The incoming voters are Kansas City's Esther George, Cleveland's Loretta Mester, St. Louis, James Bullard, and the new president of the Boston Fed, which is in the process of recruiting for that position. In the meantime, Philadelphia's Patrick Harkerser will cast Boston's vote. So how does the market normally do when the Fed begins to raise rates? The markets tend to do well after the first rate hike. According to research from LPL Research, it shows that returns can be choppy the first three months after a rate hike, but historically 12 months later, stocks are higher with an average return of 10.8%, and we're up 100% of the time over the next 12 months after the first rate hike when looking at rate hike cycles since August of 1983. According to Keith Lerner, Truist Co-Chief Investment Officer, U.S. stocks have historically performed well during complete rate hiking cycles as a growing economy tends to support corporate profit growth in the stock market. In fact, stocks have risen an average annualized rate of 9% during the 12 Fed rate hike cycle since the 1950s and delivered positive returns in 11 of those. Historically, bull markets tend to continue after the first rate hike, according to LPL research when looking at rate hike cycles going back to September of 1958. The average gain of the S&P 500 until the next bull market peak was 67%. This would make sense because normally it's the end of rate hike cycles when one must start worrying about the onset of recessions. It's not only rate hikes that could happen, but also the rolling off of the balance sheet that occur at the same time. Last time the Fed did quantitative tightening from October of 2017 through July of 2019, the S&P 500 did have positive returns, but with volatility, especially in 2018, where there were two 10% corrections and the full year return was negative. I would expect that volatility will pick up with the potential for drawdowns when quantitative tightening begins, as well as that volatility and drawdowns being larger in years after the lowest drawdowns for the S&P 500. According to Trius Advisory Services, following the 10 years with the shallowest pullbacks going back to 1955, stocks tended to rise the next year but were more volatile. The S&P 500's deepest intra-year pullback averaged 13%, while posting an average total return of 7%, with 7 of the 10 years finishing positive. Let us not forget that we have the second year of the presidential cycle for a first-term president in a midterm election year, which historically have not been as strong for the markets. 
according to LPL research, year two of the presidential cycle for first-term presidents, the S&P has averaged returns of 2.4% since 1950 versus the average year return of 6%. According to research from Market Desk, the average return for the S&P 500 during midterm election years was 5.9% since 1950 versus an average of 9.3% for all years. Those returns during midterm election years came again with larger drawdowns. According to LPL Research, the average inter-year drawdown in a midterm election year since 1950 was a negative 17.1%. LPL Research goes on to state that the final three months of a midterm year and the first two quarters of the following year, known as the pre-election year, have been some of the strongest quarter for stocks over the four-year presidential cycle. In pre-election years going back to 1950, the benchmark index has notched returns of 32.3%. So in conclusion, investors should expect more volatility in 2022, with potentially larger drawdowns due to the Fed tightening, including expected rate hikes and rolling off the balance sheet. Also, markets tend to be more volatile with larger drawdowns after years with smaller drawdowns for the S&P 500. Finally, returns during the second year of presidential cycles for first-term presidents and midterm election years tend to be lower than average years. Periods after the end of QE and during quantitative tightening, 10-year yields dropped and the yield curve flattened. Investors could look to lengthen durations of their bond portfolios as yields move higher. Stock market has taught equity investors to buy when the Fed is buying and to be careful when they are not. What stock investors may not know is the poor performance of bonds during quantitative easing and their strong performance afterwards. Bond investors should sell when the Fed is buying and buy when they are selling. Diversification of investors' equities and fixed income portfolio can help to diversify the risk of pullbacks in the equity market as the Fed begins to tighten monetary policy further. International equities can add diversification to U.S. equities with lower valuations and higher dividend yields. Dividend growth equities can provide income that can increase over time when there is a need for income with lower bond yields. Quality stocks will provide more safety during mid-cycles of economic expansion and tighter policy versus those that are more leveraged. Even though growth and tech stocks have been hit hard with rates moving higher on the potential of tighter policy, if that tighter policy leads to a slowdown in economic growth, growth stocks will again come into favor. Corrections and pullbacks are normal parts of market cycles that investors need to invest through to get the consistent longer-term return to the market. According to the Dow Jones market data, the S&P 500 has averaged just over one 10% decline a year over its history and has averaged 3.4 pullbacks for at least 5% annually. This completes this episode of the Educating Investors podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share this with other friends and family that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmgmt.com to learn more about what I do as well as to find my contact information and links to my LinkedIn page and blog. The Educating Investors podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors podcast show should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors podcast is so Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC should not be held liable for any losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on the Educating Investors podcast show.